We have to preach by example. There are many gurus, there are many spiritual leaders, there are many spiritual people, but we are in 2020. And in 2020, if we look at the thousands of years that have went by, and we look at the state of Gaia, no matter how many spiritual people, no, many, no matter how many organizations are out there, Gaia is not being respected. So, when I say we have to preach by example, is that it's a contrast. There are spiritual people who talk about how we are God, how um, yeah, how we are God. So if we are God, we are everything. We are the creation and we are everyone. And on the other side, there's this other uh, reflection of ourself, which is we are destroying, we are uh, damaging, we are killing and for the sake of profit. And so where is the balance between the two things? Are we going to expect the people on the right destroying and abusing the earth, abusing the people? Are we going to expect them to be more in alignment than us? So if we are spiritual people and we say that we are God and everything that is, it is us, so then we should be in a position where we have to expect something from ourselves first. So, let's look at the issue. Let's take a look as if the issue is on the right and the solution is on the left. Let's see where is the line between the issue and the solution. And then let's bring these two things, let's overlap these two things together. We can overlap just a little bit. And we can also overlap it completely. But in the real life, and that's when I say preach by example, in the real life, how to do this? how to overlap the solution and the issue together and if the spiritual people have the solution and the responsible people for this issue don't have it. So how to bring the two together? So just to say it and just to have a philosophy or just to have nice words uh, about that philosophy, uh, it is not enough. So what I see, I see that is the issue. That is the real issue. 
The real issue is the communication or the point where both parties meet. And that's where we have to look at. And if we apply the same process, the same procedure as I just explained just now, so we're looking at the issue. We know that the solution is already there. So now we need to overlap the two things and to do the blending. So we have to do the blending between the spiritual and the material. And this is where we have to find the edge. This is where we have to look at where's the edge on one side and where's the edge on the other side. When it's overlapping, how far are we reaching into the other side? How far is the other side coming into our side? So that's where the blending is. And as we keep blending, we keep advancing and we keep resolving. And I believe that between us, this will happen through communication, but not ordinary communication, not usual communication, not old habit communication, but effective communication which will lead to a change. So, We have to preach by example. There are many gurus, there are many spiritual leaders, there are many spiritual people, but we are in 2020. And in 2020, if we look at the thousands of years that have went by, and we look at the state of Gaia no matter how many spiritual people no, many, no matter how many organizations are out there Gaia is not being respected so when I say we have to preach by example is that it's a contrast. There are spiritual people who talk about how we are God, how um, yeah, how we are God. So if we are God, we are everything. We are the creation and we are everyone. And on the other side, there's this other uh, reflection of ourself, which is we are destroying, we are... Uh, damaging we are killing and for the sake of profit and so where is the balance between the two things are we going to expect the people on the right destroying and abusing the earth abusing the people are we going to expect them to be more in alignment than us so if we are spiritual people and we say that we are God and everything that is 
it is us. So then we should be in a position where we have to expect something from ourselves first. So let's look at the issue. Let's take a look as if the issue is on the right and the solution is on the left. Let's see where is the line between the issue and the solution. And then let's bring these two things, let's overlap these two things together. We can overlap just a little bit. And we can also overlap it completely. But in the real life, and that's when I say preach by example, in the real life, how to do this? How to overlap the solution and the issue together? And if the spiritual people have the solution and the responsible people for this issue don't have it, so how to bring the two together? So just to say it and just to have a philosophy or just to have nice words uh, about that philosophy, uh, it is not enough. So what I see, I see that is the issue. That is the real issue. The real issue is the communication or the point where both parties meet. And that's where we have to look at. And if we apply the same process, the same procedure as I just explained just now, so we're looking at the issue. We know that the solution is already there. So now we need to overlap the two things and to do the blending. So we have to do the blending between the spiritual and the material and this is where we have to find the edge this is where we have to look at where's the edge on one side and where's the edge on the other side when it's overlapping how far are we reaching into the other side how far is the other side coming into our side so that's where the blending is and as we keep blending we keep advancing and we keep resolving and I believe that between us this will happen through communication but not ordinary communication not usual communication not old habit communication but effective communication which will lead to a change so Effective communication means, what I mean by that is uh, as spiritual people, as people who know about observing what is, who know about transforming oneself, who know about elevating. Uh, so an effective communication should be 
that these people would have the capacity to interact and to use their powers to use their powers to transform through interaction with others. For example, we have two parties. One party is a light worker, one party is a destructor. So the destructor's most probable way of replying will be through destruction or through control. It's the 3D communication. And this, com this type of communication is represented by the stick. The light worker will have a tendency to speak from a higher perspective. And that would be the 5D communication. The 5D communication is represented by the ladder. So how to bring the two together in the real life? In the real life, we don't tell the, the adversary, wait, it is my turn, now it is your turn. Oh, you, have to, you cannot speak like this, you have to speak that way. So this is how mastery comes into the picture. 5D communication mastery should be learned when interacting with 3D people or 4D. 4D is, is most probably easier because 4D uh, people would most probably have an opening to and to the 5D perspective and not only they would have an opening but they would probably be open to uh, listen open to receive while the 3D perspective would have uh, most probably a behavior which would be on the either on the defensive side or either on the using their power side. I don't know if that is clear, but let's assume that it's clear. So we have our two teams, our two um, parties, and we want to blend both sides. As a light worker, we know that if we can blend with the other, we know that the other receives and we know that we have planted a seed in them and the seed will grow and will grow into a plant and will turn into a fruit. That we'll be able to pick or gather later. So it is very important to work on our skills of communication with other parties which speak from a different perspective. Because we want to master the control of this communication because we know the effect that is going to have in our reality 
if the blending is happening on a conscious level and if we are working at it in the sense that uh, not that it's going to feel like work, not at all, but I mean to work it, I'm talking about the mechanics that will bring the change into this reality in a faster way, in a most effective way and I would say to to help this change of reality to get this momentum going so to solidify to create a base and to anchor our ideas and thoughts and spiritual teachings into this 3D reality into this reality that most people are experiencing as a mass so by anchoring these teachings in the real world not as a philosophy not as a text that was written by someone but into the real world as a mechanic as a mechanism to transform our reality well that would be mission accomplished on mastering that art. Teaching in on Nova Tierra. Teaching on Nova Tierra. I was having this uh, picture of of uh, what can be taught to the very young children and schools could have programs where well programs school could teach the very young children about their biology starting with defecation like what is it and then bring them to understand that this is what we put in our mouth and this is what is coming out so what happened between that vegetable whatever food until there and then take them to the path of what is happening inside and therefore bring concepts like it's important to chew our food very well to eat with passion to have relationship with that food to understand that the food is also divine and all that concept of the nutrients and their connection with the greater consciousness what are the nutrients and what are the elements and and then bring them to you know higher even higher consciousness like understanding how elements become material and then bring the soul into the topic and and that could be really fantastic and as they grow uh, like in the age of uh, learning um, you know writing and reading and stuff we could teach uh, ancient writing ancient uh, text for example Sanskrit or for example Sumerian and uh, 
or Mayan even, but even though like Mayan we're not really knowing, understanding how it goes. But that would really make a big difference on this planet as we are moving into the new reality. This is a great moment in history. Take a moment to find your center. Take a deep inhale. Become aware of the expansion of your breath. And exhale fully and begin to breathe into your heart. to settle more. Allow this relaxation to intensify as you focus on breathing into your heart. the energy flowing from your head into your heart.
And as you continue to breathe, allow your mind to settle. As you disinvest all of your attention and energy from everything that has captured it today, from the things you have to do, from your identity, and become no one.
Allow the Spirit of God to bathe you in love and light. gentle embrace of the master and of Archangel Michael as they come in to encourage you. Empowered 
with the Holy Spirit and the Master, Yeshua, and Archangel Michael supporting you and guiding you. given a direction, like pointing at a place to go, a thing to do, is from the world of the 3D. So if Sadhu was not talking to me or talking to a person, if Sadhu was talking in general and with, uh, with the we perspective, controlling others or the elements outside of us. 
creating, offering a vibration that allows us to, to smoothly transition into what is coming for us from that moment where we created. chosen to read a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. The man who wrote it, his name is George S. Clayson. He was born in Louisiana, Missouri in 1874. He attended the University of Nebraska and served in the army of his country uh, during the war, Spanish-American War. I didn't know there was such war. What were the Americans doing in Spain? So beginning a long career in publishing, he founded the Class and Map Company of Denver, Colorado. He published the first road atlas of the United States and Canada, where I'm from. In 1926, he issued the first of a famous series of pamphlets on thrift and financial success, using parables set in ancient Babylon to make each of his points. That is quite interesting. These were distributed in large quantities by banks and insurance companies and became familiar to millions, the most famous being the richest man in Babylon, the parable from which the present volume takes its title. These Babylonian parables have become a modern inspirational classic. So here it is before we read the book. I will read the introduction. Ahead of you stretches your future like a road leading into the distance. Along that road are ambitious you wish to accomplish, and not ambitious ambitions you wish to accomplish, desires you wish to gratify. To bring your ambitions and desires to fulfillment, you must be successful with money. Use the financial principles made clear in the pages that follow. Let them guide you away from the stringencies of a lean purse to that fuller, happier life a full purse makes possible. Like the law of gravity, these laws of money are universal and unchanging. May they prove for you, as they have proven to so many others, a sure key to a fat purse, larger bank balances and gratifying financial progress. Here we will start with the reading of this magnificent book in a way 
because it's based on texts that are written in the clay. We call them clay tablets. They were found, uh, found in the territories that used to be Mesopotamia. So I begin. Money is the medium by which earthly success is measured. Money makes possible the enjoyment of the best the earth affords. Money is plentiful for those who understand the simple laws which govern its acquisition. Money is governed today by the same laws which controlled it when prosperous men thronged the streets of Babylon 6,000 years ago. In this book, we will read a part called Start Thy Purse to Fattening. Two, control thy expenditures. Three, make thy goal multiply. Four, guard thy treasures from loss. Five, make of thy dwelling a profitable investment. Six, ensure a future income. Seven, increase thy ability to earn. So forward, forward. Our, our prosperity as a nation depends upon the personal financial prosperity of each of us as individuals. This book deals with the personal successes of each of us. Success means accomplishments as the result of our own efforts and abilities. Proper preparation is the key to our success. Our acts can be no wiser than our thoughts. Our thinking can be no wiser than our understanding. This book of cures for lean purses has been termed a guide to financial understanding. That indeed is its purpose, to offer those who are ambitious for financial success an insight which will aid them to acquire money, to keep money and to make their surpluses earn more money. In the pages which follow, we are taken back to Babylon, the cradle in which were nurtured the basic principles of finance now recognized and used the world over. The new readers, to new readers, the author is happy to extend the wish that its pages may contain for them the same inspiration for growing bank accounts, greater financial success, and the solution of difficult personal financial problems so enthusiastically reported by readers from coast to coast. To the business executive who have distributed these tales in such generous quantities to friends, relatives, employees, 
and associates, the author takes his, this opportunity to express his gratitude. No endorsement could be higher than that of practical men who appreciate its teachings because they themselves have worked up to important successes by applying the very principle, the very principles it advocates. Babylon became the wealthiest city of the ancient world because its citizens were the richest people of their time. They appreciated the value of money. They practiced sound financial principles in acquiring money, keeping money, and making their money earn more money. They provided for themselves what we all desire, incomes for the future. And it is undersigned G. S.C. Some initials, most probably. George S. Clayson, the author of this book. So we begin a historical sketch of Babylon. A historical sketch of Babylon. In the pages of history, there lives no city more glamorous than Babylon. Its very name conjures visions of wealth and splendor. Its treasures of gold and jewels were fabulous. One naturally pictures such a wealthy city as located in a suitable setting of tropical luxury surrounded by rich natural resources of forests and mines. Such was not the case. It was located beside the Euphrates River in a flat, arid valley. It had no forest, no mines, not even stone for building. It was not even located on a natural trade route. The rainfall was insufficient to raise crops. Comment. This is my personal comment. My name is Caroline Allard Doucet. I'm reading The Richest Man in Babylon. I have studied history um, a little bit about Mesopotamia, the Anunnaki, the um, civilizations that have covered our planet before before men actually destroyed it before men killed each other uh, slaughters of men and uh, there is a time in history where there was a big flood actually the Turkish people right now in Turkey, they still have uh, this saying. They they say that the kings before the flood and the kings after the flood. So, if this is still used nowadays, uh, the possibility is that there was a flood, and in their country or in their territory, because in those days, it was not called. Uh, 
countries were not separated or divided as it is today. They were territories more than countries. And the possibility that there was actually a luxurious place and uh, a territory which is uh, perfect for this type of uh, um, wealth to develop is very probable if we read the Mesopotamian tablets, the clay tablets that were found in Mesopotamia. There was actually, yes, a territory around the Euphrates River and the Tigris River where uh, it was luxuriant. So if there was a flood, and apparently there was, and this is not only in a book, this is not only Turkey who's saying that, this is in many places written in many books, written in many different histories of different civilizations on this planet. And uh, so I'm going to continue. I hope my comment didn't disturb you too much. I continue my reading. So Babylon is an outstanding example of man's ability to achieve great objectives using whatever means are at his disposal. All of the resources supporting this large city were man-developed. All of its riches were man-made. Babylon possessed just two natural resources, fertile soil, soil and water in the river. With one of the greatest engineering accomplishments of this or any other day, Babylonian engineers diverted the waters from the river by means of dams and immense irrigation canals. Far out across that arid valley, when these canals to pour the life-giving waters over the fertile soil. This ranks among the first engineering feats grown to history. Such abundant crops as were the reward of this irrigation system the world had never seen before. Fortunately, during its long, its long existence, Babylon was ruled by successive lines of kings to whom conquest and plunder were but incidental. While it engaged in many wars, most of these were local or defensive against ambitious conquerors from other countries who coveted the fabulous treasures of Babylon. The outstanding rulers of Babylon live in history because their wisdom, enterprise and justice, because of their wisdom, enterprise and justice, Babylon produced no strutting monarchs who sought to conquer the known world that all nations might pay homage to their egotism. As a city, Babylon exists no more. When those energizing human forces that built and maintained the city for thousands of years were withdrawn, or drowned, that's my comment. It soon became a deserted ruin. The site of the city 
is in Asia, but 600 miles east of the Suez Canal, just north of the Persian Gulf. The latitude is about 33, no, 30 degrees above the equator, equator, practically the same as that of Yuma, Arizona. It possessed a climate similar to that of this American city, hot and dry. So I guess this is a comment from the author. So there are sometimes comments which are uh, or which are influenced by the personal knowledge, uh, knowing of the persons. So, but a person doesn't know everything. So sometimes they speak through their own knowledge and let's keep that in mind. So I continue. Today, this valley of Euphrates, once a populous irrigated farming district, is again a wind-swept arid waste. Scant grass and desert shrubs strive for existence against the wind-blown sand. Gone are the fertile fields, the mammoth cities and the long caravans of rich merchandise. Nomadic bands of Arabs securing a scant living by tending small herds are the only inhabitants. Such it has been since about the beginning of the Christian era. Dotting this valley are earth then hills. Dotting this valley are earth then hills. For centuries they were considered by travelers to be nothing else. The attention of archaeologists were finally attracted to them because of the broken pieces of pottery and brick washed down by the occasional rainstorms. Expeditions financed by European and American museums were sent here to excavate and see what could be found. Picks and shovels soon proved these hills to be ancient cities. City graves they might as well be called. Babylon was one of these. Over it for something like 20 centuries, the winds had scattered the desert dust. Built originally of brick, all exposed walls had disintegrated and gone back to earth once more. Such is Babylon, the wealthy city of today. The wealthy city today, a heap of dirt, so long abandoned that no living person ever knew its name until it was discovered by carefully removing the refuse of centuries from the streets and the fallen wreckage of its noble temples and palaces. Many scientists consider the civilization of Babylon and other cities in this valley to be the oldest of which there is a definite record. Positive dates have been proved reaching back 8,000 years. An interesting fact in this connection is the means used to determine these dates. Uncovered in the ruins of Babylon were descriptions of an eclipse of the sun. Were descriptions of an eclipse of the sun. Modern astronomers readily computed the time when such an eclipse visible in Babylon occurred and thus established a known relationship 
between their calendar and our own. In this way, we have proved that 8,000 years ago, the Sumerites, who inhabited Babylonia, were living in walled cities. One can only conjecture for how many centuries previous such cities had existed. Their inhabitants were not m mere barbarians living within protecting walls. They were an educated and enlightened people. So far as written history goes, they were the first engineers, the first astronomers, the first mathematicians, the first financiers, and the first people to have a written language. Now I will add my own comment to this. According to the Mesopotamian tablets, those clay tablets, in which are inscribed a lot of information, those tablets relate uh, that men were created, genetically created, by a form of inhabitants that were here on Earth. They were from somewhere else, but they have been living here for hundreds of thousands of years. And they have uh, mined the continents and they have developed species of beings uh, that could work for them. And uh, they have also, as, as they were developing more and more new species and more perfect species, they have also established different civilizations to live in different places in different parts of the world. So Me Mesopotamia is the place where the first civilizations were created. Okay, end of my comment. Uh, so I continue the reading. In this way, we have proved that 8,000 years ago, the Sumerites who have inhabited Babylonia were living in walled cities. One can only conjecture for how many centuries previous such cities had existed. Their inhabitants were not mere barbar barbarians living within protecting walls. They were an educated and enlightened people. So mention has already been made of the irrigation systems, which transformed the arid valley into an agricultural paradise. The remains of these canals can still be traced, although they are mostly filled with accumulated sand. Some of them were of such size that, when empty of water, a dozen horses could be ridden abreast along their bottoms. In size, they compare favorably with the largest canals in Colorado and Utah. In addition to irrigating the valley lands, Babylonians engineers completed another project of similar magnitude by means of an elaborate an elaborate drainage system, they reclaimed an immense area of swamp land at the mouth of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and put this also under cultivation. Herodotus, the Greek traveler and historian, visited Babylon while it was in its prime 
and has given us the only known description by an outsider. His writings give a graphic description of the city and some of the unusual customs of its people. He mentions the remarkable fertility of the soil and the bountiful harvest of wheat and barley which they produced. It is interesting, this is my comment, I'm sorry, it is interesting to to know and to realize that Herodotus went from Greece to Babylon and that he he wrote about the city so as the book says from an outsider his perception must be very interesting I hope we will get to talk about this later so I continue my reading the glory of Babylon has faded, but its wisdom has been preserved for us. For this we are indebted to their form of records. In that distant, distant day, the use of paper had not been invented. Instead, they laboriously engraved their writing upon tablets of moist clay. When completed, these were baked and became hard tile. In size they were about 6 by 8 inches and an inch in thickness. These clay tablets, as they are commonly called, were used much as we use modern form of forms of writing. Upon them were engraved legends, poetry, history, transcriptions of royal decrees, the laws of the land, titles to property, promissory notes, and even letters which were dispatched by messengers to distant cities. From these clay tablets we are permitted an insight into the intimate personal affairs of the people. For example, one tablet evidently from the records of a country storekeeper relates that upon the given date a certain name customer brought in a cow and exchanged it for seven sacks of wheat, three being delivered at the time and the other four to await the customer's pleasure. Safely buried in the wrecked cities, archaeologists have recovered entire libraries of these tablets hundreds, thousands of them. My comment, this is absolutely fantastic that we have the opportunity to read these tablets. And would you say, but how can we read these tablets if we don't know the writing? Well, a Rosetta stone was found in one of those ancient buildings where there was a text on the wall and this text was in three languages. Two of those languages were known of the people of nowadays, and the other one is this ancient Mesopotamian uh, language. So therefore, now in nowadays, because of that, we are able to read these tablets. Just a few people can read this uh, language, but 
hopefully more and more people will have the chance to learn this language. The richest man in Babylon, I pursue my reading. We were talking about Babylon and the clay tablets on which we have recovered a lot of information from those days. So here I go. One of the outstanding wonders of Babylon was the immense walls surrounding the city. The, ancient, the ancients ranked them with the Great Pyramid of Egypt as belonging to the seven wonders of the world. Queen Semiramis is credited with having erected the first walls during the early history of the city. Modern excavators have been unable to find any trace of the original walls nor is their exact height known. From mention made by early writers, it is estimated they were about 50 to 60 feet high, faced on the outer side with burnt brick and further protected by a deep moat of water. The later and more famous walls were started about 600 years before the time of Christ by King Nabopolassar. Upon such a gigantic scale did he plan the rebuilding, he did not live to see the work finished. This was left to his son, Nebuchadnezzar, whose name is familiar in biblical history. The height and length of these later walls staggers belief. They are reported upon reliable authority to have been about 160 feet high, the equivalent of the height of a, of the height of a modern 50-store office building. The total length is estimated as between 9 and 11 miles. So wide was the top that a six-horse chariot could be driven around them. Of this tremendous structure, little now remains except portions of the foundations and the moat. In addition to the ravages of the elements, the Arabs completely completed the destruction by carrying the bricks for building purpose elsewhere. Against the walls of Babylon marched, in turn, the victorious armies of almost every conqueror of that age of wars of conquest. A host of kings laid siege to Babylon, but always in vain. Invading armies of that day were not to be considered lightly. Historians speak of such units as 10,000 horsemen, 25,000 chariots, 1,200 regiments of foot soldiers with 1,000 men to the regiment. 
Often two or three years of preparation would be required to assemble war materials and depots of food along the proposed line of march. The city of Babylon was organized much like a modern city. There were streets and shops. Peddlers offered their war their wares their wares temp I'm sorry. Peddlers offered their wares through residential districts. Priests officiated in magnificent temples. Within the city was an inner enclosure for the royal palaces. The walls about this were said to have been higher than those about the city. The Babylonians were skilled in the arts. These included sculpture, painting, weaving, goldworking, and the manufacture of metal weapons and agricultural implements. Their jewelers created most artistic jewelry. Many samples have been recovered from the graves of its wealthy citizens and are now on exhibitions in the leading museums of the world. At a very early period, when the rest of the world was still hacking at trees with stone-headed axes or hunting and fighting with flint-pointed spears and, and arrows, the Babylonians were using axes, spears and arrows with metal heads. The Babylonians were clever financiers and traders. So far as we know, they were the original inventors of money as a means of exchange of promissory notes and written titles to property. Babylon was never entered by hostile armies until about 540 years before the birth of Christ. Even then the walls were not captured. The story of the fall of Babylon is most unusual. Cyrus, one of the great conquerors of that period, intended to attack the city and hoped to take its impregnable walls. Advisors of Nabonidus, the king of Babylon, persuaded him to go forth to meet Cyrus and give him battle without waiting for the city to be besieged. In the succeeding defeat to the Babylonian army, it fled away from the city. Cyrus thereupon entered the open gates and took possession without resistance. Thereafter, the power and prestige of the city gradually waned until, in the course of a few hundred years, it was eventually abandoned, deserted, left for the winds and storms to level once again to that desert earth from which its grandeur had originally been built. Babylon had fallen never to rise again, but to its civilization owes much. The eon of time have crumbled to dust the proud walls of its temples, but the wisdom of Babylon endures.